you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 4. We will be looking at verses 7 and 8 today. If you are visiting with us again, we are grateful to have you. It is our practice here that we preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. And so we've been preaching through this book for several months now, and we're getting close to the end of it. But hopefully God is blessing you as he's blessing us. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. The title of the sermon today is Born to Love. And for you worshipers in training, your key words for today are God, love, and know. Last week we looked at the first six verses of chapter 4 where John's emphasis was again on the confession that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and is from God. We saw that in, especially in verse 2 of, of chapter 4. We saw that John was calling us to be spiritually discerning people. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, was John's admonition. And now he immediately moves in these verses that we're looking at today to the subject of love again. Now why would he move from this discussion of faith our believing in the truth of God's Word about who Jesus is immediately to this issue of love. How are they connected? Well, if you look back to chapter 3, verse 23, you'll see one way that they're connected. In chapter 3, verse 23, he summarizes, John summarizes the New Testament call to the Christian life in this way. He says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. So you see there he is summarizing it by saying we should believe in the name of, the son, of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. Now isn't it interesting to see John summarize the call of the Christian life, the call of the Christian experience to believing in who Jesus is according to the scriptures, according with the scriptures and loving one another in the bonds of Christian fellowship in accordance with scripture. In fact, as we're going to see starting today from chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 5, verse 4, is really an elaboration on that point which he has given to us in an outline form here in verse 23 of chapter 3. And so John has repeatedly in this book been concerned not only to call us to faith, not only to call us to trust, not only to call us to belief in who Jesus Christ is and what the Bible says about him, but he's calling us to belief in who Christ claimed to be, but he's also concerned to call us to mutual self-giving as Christians, denying ourselves for the sake of one another, loving one another despite our natural differences and even sinful differences, and that have arisen between us as believers, and loving across those obstacles and boundaries. That's what he's calling us to do. He calls us to this constantly. We've already seen that very clearly. But starting in these two passages today and continuing on for the next few weeks, we're going to see perhaps more clearly than anywhere else in this book how these things are not only parallel in John's argument, but they're inseparably connected in John's argument. For John, you cannot love without the truth, and the truth is unto our love of one another. So often today, a wedge is being being driven between these two things. People will say, We need to stop talking about all this doctrine, and we just need to love one another. That's the slogan of our day. 
As far as John is concerned, you cannot love like God calls you to love if you do not embrace the doctrines of God's Word. And the doctrine of God's Word has not accomplished its purpose in your heart until you have a love for God and a love for your brethren and a love for your neighbor like He Himself has in His own heart and is expressed in the gift of His Son, Jesus. For John, you see, the truth and love go hand in hand. They go together and they cannot be separated without damage to one another. And so, as I said, we've already seen this before. As we've, as we've shown you that John is really not, he doesn't teach the same way Paul does. Paul goes from one point to another and he's kind of in a systematic way. John, in teaching through important truth, is kind of teaching cyclically going back and forth, going to, going to one point, going away from it, coming back to it again. And so he's constantly going around, going back to the same point. And we've already looked at this important doctrine of, of loving one another twice in First John. I want to re, refresh, refresh our memories. Back in chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, John says, At the same time it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Next chapter over in chapter 3, verse 14 through 16, John says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And so now as we begin this chapter or or this portion of Scripture starting in verse 7 and for the next uh, entire chapter, the next few weeks, we're really going to be focusing, John's going to be narrowing his argument and really pushing to the forefront this emphasis of love, God's love for us and our love for him and our love for one another. And so let's read our text for today. First uh, John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever has been born of God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. I want to pause to pray here for a minute because this is some deep stuff here. I kind of tremble standing up here this morning trying to explain to you the love of God. So I want to ask God's blessing upon us. Let's pray. Lord, I come to you now and ask that you would guide my words, that you would guide our ears. Father, that only the truth will find its place in our heart. Lord, this is a very deep truth as we begin to even look at and examine what it means that God is love. And so I pray that you would um, open your scriptures to us and guide us with the wisdom of your truth. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I want to start at the end and then work our way back. I want to look at this very last phrase first because this is the foundation of everything that we're going to be talking about. We have to start with the source of love, and that is God himself. And so at the very end, the very last phrase of verse 8, John says, God is love. What does he mean by that? Let's talk about what he doesn't mean. The expression God is love is not meant to depersonalize God or portray him as a force 
a sensation, a principle, or some sort of cosmic energy. Nor does it identify God with everything our society labels as love. He is a personal being with all the attributes of personality, volition, feeling, and intellect. He is not a tree or a feeling of goodwill conjured up collectively by a group of well-meaning people. He is also not to be associated with the world's obsession with sexual debauchery as a form of love. This expression, God is love, is also not meant to be a definition of God or a summary of His attributes, His omniscience, His omnipotence, His omnipresence, His immutability, His lordship, His righteousness, His wrath against sin, or any of His glorious perfections. Deny any one of them and you have denied the God of the Scripture. There is more to love, there is more to God than love. The Apostle John, who says God is love here, also wrote in chapter 4, verse 24 of the Gospel of John that God is spirit. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 29, that God is a consuming fire. The psalmist says in 711, Psalm 711, that God is a righteous judge. And then earlier in the letter, in the very beginning of this letter, in chapter 1, verse 5, John says, God is light. And so we see here that there are many different descriptions of this God, and so we cannot just focus on one as being the all-encompassing definition of who God is. But what does it mean when John is saying that God, that God is love? Let's look at what the, there's five ways that I believe the Bible describes the love of God or God's love. The first we think we see, and this is the most prominent one, I think, is the peculiar love of the Father for the Son and of the Son of the Father and for the Son and the Father for the Spirit of God. This intra-Trinitarian love that we see in the Scriptures. John chapter 3, verse 35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. We see that all through the Gospel of John where He's chronicling the love of the Father has for the Son. And this is a love that goes way back into eternity past and has no beginning. John chapter 14, verse 31, getting towards the end of Christ's life, he says, But I do as the, this is Christ speaking, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And so we see here that Christ is telling him, telling his disciples that he does the things that he does, so that the world may know that he loves the Father. He came to do his Father's will, and the Father has loved him with an eternal love. So we see this very prominent in the Scriptures, this intra-Trinitarian love that God the Father has for God the Son and vice versa. The second way we see love be, God's love being described is God's providential love over all that He has made. The Bible, by and large, doesn't use the word love to describe God's dealings with His creation, but the concept is still easily seen. We see that He cares for all of His creation, and we see in the Scriptures that Jesus was talking about in Matthew, that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without his permission. And we see when Jesus, when Jesus is teaching the disciples in, in the Sermon on the Mount about not being anxious about tomorrow, he talks about how God clothes the, lit, the, the, the flowers of the field, how he makes them uh, grow. He, he talks about how he provides the food for the uh, birds and so that um, he takes care of his his creation. He takes care of all, but it's much broader than the animal kingdom. But God has a providential love for his creation because remember in the beginning he says when he looked out on his creation before sin had marred it, he said it is good. And so even though it's not as good as it was at that point, God has still 
not cease to love his creation and, and to care for it. The third way we see God speak, or the Bible speaking about God's love is God's general love for mankind. Many people who do not believe that God elects and predestines some for salvation think that the verse John 3.16 teaches that God loves every single person who has ever lived. I want to read that. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And so we see that people, a lot of people who don't believe that God has a, has a special love for His people and electing love will say that this means that John loves everybody, or that God loves everybody indiscriminately, unconditionally. Some people who do believe in God's electing some people for salvation try to wrestle this verse away from the other group by claiming that the word world here is referring to the world of the elect. And I think they're both wrong. The inescapable conclusion here, I believe, as we look at this verse and as you compare it to the rest of other verses and the way the word world is used in John, is that he's not so much talking about the world of what, the world of people, but the world, uh, the world of who, but the world of a what, a bad world, a fallen world in general. It's not a reference to the total number of people or to people as individuals, but rather to unlovely humanity in general as a singular object of God's love. From among the mass of fallen humanity, which God says He loves in John 3.16, He has chosen some He has chosen some upon which to set His highest form of love. And so I want to make that clear. You know, we can't say that whenever it says that God so loved the world that He's just talking about those that He's actually going to save. Because it wouldn't make any sense. Because then why would He put the condition that whosoever believes in Him should not perish. It doesn't make any sense that way. And so we have to look at the world there that God's salvific stance, His desire is for people to be saved. You know, it says in Ezekiel that God does not not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but He wishes that they would turn from their evil ways and repent. And so we see that God does have a general love for all mankind. He does, he does bless some of those who are not His believers, not in a salvific way, but in a, in a, in a general love way. And then probably especially as we're concerned, we see the fourth way is God's particular, effective, selecting love towards His elect, towards those who He does save. We see this being laid out in many passages in the Old and New Testament to affirm this aspect of God's love. I'll just pick one, a couple. One from the, uh, from the Old Testament, speaking about God's electing of the nation of Israel. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Speaking to the nation of Israel, God says, It was not because you were more in number than any of the people than the, that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the hand of Pharaoh. So you see, He's saying it was not based on anything lovely in you. It's just the fact that He set His love on the nation of Israel and chose them out from all of the other nations on the earth. We see in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 5, it says, But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so you see him tying the love of God with, 
these familiar terms that we understand that can only be applied to God's people, justified, uh, being saved from the wrath of God. We've been reconciled. So this cannot be every single person who's ever been made or else everybody would be reconciled and justified. And so God's love is, is especially shown in a special saving way to his elect. And we see in, in Romans chapter 9, it talks about that the entire chapter speaking about God's sovereign choice of certain individuals. He says, as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I have hated. And so we see that, uh, that unconditional love that is not, has nothing to do with anything lovely in the people, but that God chose certain people before the foundation of the world, that he would save them from his wrath. And then the, the last way we see, and this is called God's love, is sometimes said to be directed towards his own people in a provisional or conditional way, Condition that is on obedience. Now listen to this one now. It is part of the relational structure of knowing God. It does not have to do with how we become a true follower of God, but with our relationship with Him once we know Him. Jude says in, in verse 21 of his little book, he says, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now why would he encourage people to keep themselves in the love of God? Wouldn't that presuppose that maybe they could not keep themselves in the love of God? Now, obviously, he's not speaking about these other ways I'm talking about because you cannot remove yourself from God's providential love. You cannot remove yourself from God's electing love or his general love for mankind. So this is um, looking at more of a different way of looking at not really God's love, but God's dealing with his covenant people as a loving father. And so we see, we see this probably prominent in the way we deal with our children. You know, we love our children. We have an unconditional love for them, but sometimes that love gets manifested in wrath, right? Because they have disappointed or broken some rule or something. And so we see this same way that, that speaking about God's love um, in this way. We see this in the, in the Old Testament when God was giving the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. He says in, um, in verse 6, he says, But God showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me, and keep my commandments. And so you see there's sort of a condition there. But it's not a condition for salvation. It's a condition as opposed to between God's blessing or as a between God's wrath. But it's always in the context of a loving father who's disciplining his children. And so what are some of the dangers here? Because there's a lot of talk about the love of God in our day. Everybody has their understanding and their view of the love of God. And so it's easy to see what will happen if one of these five things that I've just talked about, one of these biblical ways of talking about the love of God is absolutized or made exclusive or made the controlling grid by which the other ways of talking about the love of God are relativized. Let me give you a few examples. If the love of God is nothing more than His providential love for all His creation, if that's really what the love of God is, then really the universalist who claims that a loving God would never punish someone eternally in hell is correct. See what I'm saying? If all God is love is boiled up into His general love for everybody, there is, no, there is no stipulation about His wrath against sin. If He is just a loving God who loves everyone the same without any stipulation about their sin, then everyone, no one will have to fear an eternal wrath in hell. If the love of God is the same for all mankind, if the love of God is exclusively portrayed as an inviting, a yearning, a sinner-seeking, sinner rather lovesick passion, 
we may strengthen the hands of Arminians or semi-Pelagians or even Pelagians and those more interested in God's inner emotional life than in His justice and glory. But the cost will be massive, and so we see that in our day. Uh, the Arminians who believe that, that the word world in John 3.16 is saying that God loved everybody in a saving way equally, that He has provided the, uh, the Savior for everyone, and all we have to do is place our faith in Him and we will receive uh, the blessings of that, then we see that everything that has to do with the atonement is turned upside down. The, the power of the atonement is taken away. If we absolutize that form of God's love being unconditional uh, to every single person and every person who's ever lived. If the love of God is seen only as for the elect, then the danger is to become complacent in our love for lost people. If we just see it as simply God loves the elect and He hates everybody else, then what will we do? We will tend to be stuck in our little cliques and we will tend to only love those who we think God has saved. And we will have no desire to reach out with the good news of the gospel and spread those good news that God does save lost people. And then finally, if the love of God is conditioned solely on our obedience, then that may drive us backwards toward merit theology, endless fretting about whether or not we have been good enough today to enjoy the love of God. We will never experience the freedom that comes from the cross because we will constantly feel like we are earning God's love. And so you see, you have to keep it balanced. You have to see that these are not just compartmentalized ways of looking at God's love, but they are just different ways that is manifested throughout His creation and even amongst the Trinity. And so we see that John here, by saying that God is love, John is making a very strong statement about character and the essence of God. It is God's very nature to love. Love permeates who He is. We also know that God is holy and He is righteous and just, but He is love. And so these do not cancel each other out. And so we can say it this way, he, His love is a holy love. His love is a righteous love. And His love is a just love. And so we see that... that that John here is describing this God of the God of the Bible as a God of love. And so how does that manifest itself to his people, to the people of, uh, of earth and to his people in general, specifically? And so that's what we're going to be looking at as we start to go through these two verses. So looking at verse 7, he says, Based on the fact that God is love, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We see John here urging people, based on the fact that God is a loving God, based on the fact that He is the source of love, that He's urging others to action. How is He urging us to action? And we see it in three ways. We see three truths being coming out that tell us why we are able to love because God is love. First, love is from God. That's what he says, for love is from God. The word from is the Greek word ek, which is primarily a preposition denoting origin, the point in which motion or action proceeds. And so we know that since God is love, He is the source of love. He is the fountainhead of love. That is where love originates. It comes from Him and it proceeds out from Him. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. The first one he mentions, the fruit of the Spirit the Spirit of God, not our spirits, but the fruit of the Spirit working through us. The first one he mentions there is love because it comes from Him. 
The second thing we see here is that it is the evidence of our new birth because he says, for God is love and whoever, whoever loves has been born of God. We see here just looking at the, the grammatical construction of these words, the word loves is in the present tense, meaning continuous action. We've seen that over and over and over in this epistle that John is not saying that we just do something one time and then we can classify ourselves as being characterized by that word. No, he's talking about that, we, that whoever loves, whoever continuously loves is born of God. Has been born is in the perfect tense, meaning completed action in the past, which results in the continuing to the present. So in the new birth, we are joined to Christ, and that means we will exhibit, albeit imperfectly, His characteristics. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be saved, that we are changed forever. We are placed in the body of Christ. We are attached to the Savior in a saving way. And then we begin to experience His characteristics. Just to, to illustrate this, you know, Mitch just had his um, bone marrow transplant, and uh, one, of the, one of the fascinating things that happens when you have a bone marrow transplant is that after it's, after it's over, you know, you start out with your own blood type, say it's A positive. And then after it was over, uh, what, uh, the, after his, the stem cells were harvested from his brother and given to him, his blood type completely changed and, and became the blood type of his brother. And so he is no longer classified as according to his, his, the blood type he was born with. He has a completely new blood type. And so it was, it's even unique because I called him one day and I uh, heard some commotion going on in the background. It was somebody who, who, else, who else had just gotten one, and they were giving him a birthday party. I heard some clapping going on in the background. They were singing happy birthday because uh, that's, that's the way that they're saying that you are a new man now. You, you have actually been born again as, a, as it pertains to your blood type. You are a new person. And so that's the way we can look at the new birth. It's like a bone marrow transplant. We had... The, the old bone marrow that was, that was enslaved to sin, it was in bondage to sin, has been, has been replaced with a new marrow, the marrow of Christ himself. And that, that marrow is penetrating all through our body and changing us. It, it immediately makes us into his characteristics, but the, the effects carry on from that day on imperfectly. But we see that happening, that it is the evidence of the new birth. And one of the main evidences that we see is that it's causing us to love. It's not that we just all of a sudden learned it because we, the, the light bulb finally went off in our head and I understand, okay, I need to love people. I need to do this. I need to do that. No, it's because of that, that life-giving spirit that's now going through my system. It's causing me to exude love because it comes from the source and I'm attached to the source. I'm attached to the fountainhead of love, which is God, and now is permeating through me and coming out of me going towards others. And then John says here, it is the evidence of spiritual knowledge. He says, for God is love and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This is a present indicative verb which signifies a fact of continuous action. We are constantly, continuously knowing God. So what does he mean to know God? It's the Greek word genosko, which means an experiential knowledge and intimate knowledge. This is not just knowledge of facts. I know, I know your name or I know something about you or I know that you lived. This is an experiential knowledge. This word is used for sexual relationships between a husband and wife in the Bible where it says that, that Adam knew his wife and she bore and had Cain. It's the same word. And so we see this word throughout the Bible when it's talking about an intimate knowledge 
an experiential knowledge. It's not that I just know about this God or I know these facts about Jesus. I know Him. I know who He is. I've experienced His loving kindness to me. I've experienced a new hatred for sin and I know that that does not come from me. It comes from the life-giving Spirit that is God. And so I know that experientially and it starts out imperfectly when I first come to know Him. But as I grow more and more, as I walk more and more in in His Spirit, I get to know Him more and more. And as you speak to older people who have been walking with God for many, many years, you see that very, very distinctly in them, don't you not? That they really do love Jesus. They started out by growing, by learning things about Jesus and experiencing His blessings. But then it becomes more and more and more not about them. It becomes more and more and more about, I just love Christ. I I yearn for His presence. I yearn to be in heaven with Him. And so that's what it means to know God. So how did, why does knowing God create loving people? In John chapter 17, we see this great... Pre, this is really the prayer of Jesus on the night He was betrayed as He was praying for His disciples and, and then um, for us all as well. In chapter uh, verse 17, chapter 1, or verse 17, verse 1 through 3, He says... When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. This is it. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So you see he's talking about that same word, know. That they may know you. They may be joined to you. They may have that experiential knowledge of you. That's what eternal life is. It's not just being saved from hell. It's being joined with the Savior. It's longing for heaven and longing for Him. He goes on in verses 23 through 26 when he's praying for them. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. And love me even love them love them even as you love me, Father. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. There's that intertrinitarian love I was talking about. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. And then listen to this in verse 26: I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying when you come to know God personally, experientially, you are drawn into the fellowship of the Trinity. You are drawn into the love of the Trinity. This is amazing. But this is what Jesus is praying for us. He asked that the love with which the Father has loved the Son might be in us. You see that? The same love that the Father and the Son experienced perfectly for all eternity, He's praying that that same love will be in us. In other words, to know God is to love the Son of God with the very love of His Father. You can't claim to know God or to be born of God if you have not been ravished by the beauty of the Son. The evidence of being indwelt by the Spirit of God is the experience of 
of loving Jesus the way the Father loves Him. If you truly know God, you share in the fellowship of the Trinity. And if you share in the fellowship of the Trinity, you love the Son of God with the very love that the Father has for Him. I don't know about y'all, but that's amazing. I mean, our, our view of love is so warped. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. But Jesus prayed here on the night of His betrayal that we would experience that same love that the Father and the Son have together. That's there for us right now. It's not something future that He prayed for us to have because He prayed that we would, we would have eternal life. We would know Him. And so those of us who have been saved, we do know Him in that way. And then John talks about it in the negative sense in verse 8. He says, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The word there translated does not love is a present tense verb indicating continuous action. And the does not know is an aorist tense verb indicating action that is not continuous. And so what he's saying here is to put that together. He's saying anyone who's whose life is not characterized by loving others, proves that they have never known God. It's not that they just stopped loving God because they stopped loving others. No, that's backwards. The reason we don't love others is because we never have loved God. That's what he's saying here. We need to take this to heart in a serious way. There are many in evangelical churches that claim to be born again but they do not love others and they do not even make an effort to do so. They are angry, unkind, impatient, abusive in their speech, self-centered in their daily lives, and they're judgmental to others. They spread malicious gossip with great delight and they are defensive if you try to point out these sins to them. Of such people, Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his book, Life in Christ, Oh, my heart grieves and bleeds for them. They are pronouncing and proclaiming that they are not born of God. They are outside the life of God. There is no hope for such people unless they repent and turn to Him. So you see, is this characteristic of us? Is it characteristic of someone we know? Is their life characterized by not loving others? Then there again, God is give, or John here is giving us this litmus test again to examine ourselves, to see. What source am I attached to? What kingdom am I operating out of? There's two kingdoms, right? The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. We are in one or the other. And so if we are in the kingdom of Satan, then we are not going to love because we do not know God. We may show some love for for others, but it, what kind of love is it? It's a love that's based on self. What am I getting out of it? But the love that is from God that agape love, that unconditional love that puts the other's interest above ourself, if that is characteristic of it, then that is a sign and proof that we know God in some experiential way. Now, in conclusion, I just want to make a few practical observations about these two verses. First, while love is the inevitable result of being born of God, this is what we just looked at, this this verse proves that it's the inevitable result of being born of God. It is not the automatic result. You know, John says in 4-7, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The implication is that the life of God imparted to us in the new birth manifests itself for love and love for others. 
If we are the children of the one whose very nature is love, then we will be like our Father. But at the same time, John commands in verse 11, and we'll, we'll see that next week, Beloved, if God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. So we see here he's commanding us, he's telling us to be who we are. If you are a child of God, then you are going to act like your Father. He's saying it is not an automatic or effortless uh, pursuit. There is always room for growth and love. And so in one sense, he's given us this litmus test to examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. And so because John is telling us in chapter 5, verse 13, that one of the reasons that he writes this epistle is that so that those of us who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that we have eternal life. And so once we get to that place that when we know we have eternal life, the work is not over, right? We can't just sit back on our laurels and say, okay, I'm saved, everything's good, there's no work to be done. Absolutely not. This is not an automatic result. It's an inevitable result because the Spirit of God is working in us day by day to make us into the image of His Son. We've been predestined to that. But it's not the automatic result, and He will not do it without effort on our part. And how do we do that? By practicing that with one another. How many of you have been mad at somebody this week? (laughs) Every hand should be up. Absolutely. So we have had opportunities to love other people and put put others before ourselves. Because when we get mad at other people, what is happening? There is something that I desire that you have kept me from getting that is ruling my heart at the moment. And so there is my opportunity from God. Conflict is an opportunity, an opportunity from God to practice and walk in the Spirit the way He would. And so it is not an automatic result, but it is an inevitable result. And that's where, that's where the hope comes. That's where we can keep going day after day. When we get so frustrated that we cannot do this another day, we know that it is the inevitable result that I am being more and more conformed to the image of His Son. And we, take, and we, and we know that by faith, but it is true. Second, and this flows out of that, if your love for others is deficient, then your love for God is deficient. Later on in this chapter, in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 4, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so you see, they go hand in hand. If we are struggling to love other people, then we are not loving God the way we should. And so, at best, that just means we need to grow and mature. At worst, it could mean we don't know God. But nonetheless, we have to see it together. We have to see the big picture here. We cannot just sit here and come to church on Sunday and sing praises to Him and then go home and tear people up Monday through Saturday and hate people. And many Christians, I believe, are in bondage to that. And we come and we dress up on Sunday and we meet with our brothers and sisters and we put smiles on our faces and we say niceties and shake hands and say, what's up, how's it do, how you going? But that's it. That's not the love of God. If that's all it is. Next, 
the thing we need to see here is that spiritual growth is rooted in love. Ephesians chapter 3. I want to invite you to turn there. Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 14 through 21. Paul here is getting towards the end of his doctrinal section of Ephesians. We know that Ephesians is divided in half. The first three chapters deals with doctrine. Uh, The last uh, three chapters deal with practicing that doctrine that he talks about in the first part. And so when he gets to the end of of chapter 3, he prays for all those people, for the people of Ephesus, for for God's people. He says in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power, through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all, than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So you see here, Paul is praying that people will come to know Christ in this experiential They'll be growing in this spiritual way. How many of us have quoted the verse, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. We see that is linked to being rooted and grounded in love. And so if we're not rooted and grounded in love, then we are not going to experience Him who is able to do far more abundantly all than we ask or think. How many of us do not want to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in our inner being? That's the goal, right? That's the goal of studying the Word. That's the goal of living the Christian life is to become more and more strengthened with power through His Spirit so that we may glorify God in heaven, right? But there again, that is linked to us being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted. Why does He use the word root? Because where does the nourishment of a tree come from? From the trunk? Just the big part right at the very base of the ground? No. That's only a small portion of the enormity of the roots that go so far down into the ground that we can't even see it. They're going everywhere to pull the life-giving nourishment from the ground, the water. And so when the roots of a tree are dead or damaged, what happens to that tree? It dies. The fruit that comes from that tree is not just because they just pop up one day. It's because the nourishment that came through the root system fed the trunk, fed as it spread out to the branches and then popped out these fruits. But the roots are the life-giving part of the tree. And that's why 
Many, many times the Bible talks about spiritual growth. It talks about our fruit. What fruit are we having in our life? And you cannot just go around and, and when there's no fruit on a tree, just start stapling up fruit on the tree and think you have accomplished by getting fruit on that tree. It's not going to stay, right? It's going to rot because it's not attached to the life-giving nourishment of the roots. And so you see here, one of the things that Paul is praying for is that we would be rooted and grounded in love. Not just love as love is, but love from God, the God who is love. The God who is love, if we are drawing our nourishment from that, if we are attached to Him in a life-saving way, then the fruit that will begin to show itself in our life will represent the character of that God. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all these things that Paul talks about, that we should, we should not be walking in the flesh, but we should be walking in the Spirit. And we don't just create these things through our own power. We are just walking in the Spirit and allowing His nourishment to come through us and out of us. His life-giving Spirit, His love, His gentleness, His joy, His patience, His peace, all these things come from being rooted and grounded in the Savior, the Savior of love. And then finally, and I want to whet your appetite for next week because next week's going to be a great sermon. Pastor Russ, Russ is going to preach to us next week on the next three verses. And I want to read them to you because this is the greatest manifestation of God's love to us in the gift of His Son. 1 John 4, 9-11 through 11 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and has sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You don't want to miss that. That is the heart of the Gospel. The giving of the Son. The God who is love, who loved the world so much. The world of humanity, the falling lump of humanity, all of those Wretched people who hate God, who all of us were. God so loved us so much that He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You, won't, you don't want to miss that. It's going to be good. Let's pray. Father, I thank You, God, that You, you are love. And Lord, it's even now, we still do not fully understand it. And I have not even broached the subject this morning. I pray that through these words that you have given us a glimpse, God, of your character, your holy and your righteous and your just love. Your holiness which demands penalty for sin, who cannot look on sin favorably, but your love who, who solved the problem by sending your Son to die on the cross so that we might experience the life-giving love of your Spirit. Pray that you would bless us to be a loving church to each other. And God, that we would be a loving church to this community. That you would use us to take the good news of the gospel. The good news that God so loved the world that he sent his son to die so that we might live. Give us opportunities and give us boldness and courage to give that message to those around us. 
And Lord, we give you the glory and praise and honor. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.